Happy Sabbath, everyone. We were looking at the history of the Sabbath from the Old Testament. And obviously, there is no talk about the Sabbath unless we look at Genesis chapter 1. I mean, Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 4. And there we learned that the Sabbath was the last thing God created, that it was intended an entire day to spend time with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's first day was the Sabbath in complete rest of the completed work of God. He blessed it, he sanctified it, and he rested on that day. And God made the seventh day Sabbath to be a memorial of creation, a time where we could spend 24 hours unencumbered with the cares of this world, no school, no work, just fellowshipping with our God. We tied that to the fact that in Exodus chapter 16, verses 22 to 30, before the giving of the Ten Commandments, God is asking his people to remember the seventh day. And one verse in particular, Acts 16.26, I do want you to turn there because there are questions that people ask sometimes. So Acts 16.26, Acts 16.26, by way of review. Exodus, sorry, Exodus 16.26. I'm all over the place here. We're going to go spend some good time in Acts, but Exodus 16.26 says, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It's the first time in the Bible where it connects the seventh day where he rested of Genesis chapter 2 to the Sabbath day where it says particularly that the seventh day, the Sabbath. And now we may not see that as a big deal, but there are many people who argue that in Genesis it's not talking about the Sabbath, that it's just talking about the seventh day, whatever that may mean in their idea. But here in Exodus 16, before we get to the Ten Commandments, it specifically says the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none speaking. Then in the fourth commandment, it talks about remember the Sabbath day. And it's not pointing to Exodus 16, it's pointing back to creation. How do we know that? Because in Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11, it is a reminder. They're built into the fourth commandment that God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all things that are in them. A reminder of the creation week. Then there are three particular, oh, then we looked at the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, where the difference reason for the Sabbath is giving, there is because he brought us out of slavery from Egypt. And it's a, and the Sabbath, we pointed out, is a reminder that we are gods because he created us, and we are gods because he has redeemed us. Both creation and redemption, the Sabbath is given reason for because he created us and by the blood of Jesus Christ, he has redeemed us and the Sabbath is a reminder of that. Then we looked at three particular verses in, found in Exodus 31, 13 and Ezekiel 20, 12 and 20 that the Sabbath is, this is all by way of review, that the Sabbath is a divine relationship between God and Israel, and it is God that sanctifies us. The Sabbath is a sign between me and God's people 
that he sanctifies us. Not Monday, not Sunday, not Tuesday, not Wednesday, not Thursday, but the Sabbath is a sign between me and you that we sanctify, that God sanctifies his people. Pay attention to that because when we get to the New Testament portion of it, we'll see. Nehemiah talked about observance and not profaning the Sabbath. Isaiah, we looked at Isaiah 56, 2, 4, and 6 about how the Gentile, the eunuch, and everybody was invited to worship on the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath, to join in covenant relationship with God. And Isaiah 58, 13 likewise had that notion. And Isaiah 66, 23, speaking of eternity, this dual prophecy of his Israel stayed faithful to God. This dual prophecy that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will be worshiping God. So even in eternity, in the Old Testament, it talks about worshiping God on the Sabbath day. And when you look at the history of the Old Testament, we're looking about a span of 4,000 years where the seventh-day Sabbath was kept. And before we jump out of the Old Testament, I do want you to look at Genesis 26 5. Genesis 26 5. Because between creation and Exodus 16, there were anywhere between 25 to 3,000 years of history. So the Sabbath mentioned as Sabbath is not mentioned till Exodus 16, but it connects it clearly to the seventh day, which was of creation. And he blessed it, he sanctified it, and he rested. Well, speaking of Abraham, because the law, according to many, wasn't given to Exodus chapter 20. In Genesis 26, 5, it says, Abraham obeyed me. And he kept my charge, he kept my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. If the law wasn't given till Exodus 20, how could Abraham keep my commandments, my statutes, and my laws? It's because those were given orally, and they were passed down through generation. They were lost in, the, in a sense in the slavery of Egypt, and therefore God wrote them down in Exodus. But Abraham, from Genesis to Exodus, God's seventh-day Sabbath was present. And so now we jump to the New Testament, and we get to the Books of the Gospels. There are four books covering the life of Jesus. Well, we tend to think that the ministry of Jesus was three and a half years. And that is correct. However, the Gospels span from year zero till the end of his life. So we're talking about his entire life, 33 years, because they talk about when he was born in Bethlehem and prior to he was born in Bethlehem when the promise to Elizabeth and her husband were given. And so now we have another 4,000 years of the Old Testament where the Sabbath was the seventh day. And now you have the 33 plus years of the New Testament Gospels where the Sabbath is the seventh day. And God created, and Jesus, by the way, did seven Sabbath miracles 
Specifically, he probably did more than seven, but he highlights the number seven or the gospel authors because the number seven in scripture is the number of completion. And you see it everywhere in scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. You have seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven last plagues. In the book of Revelation chapter 13 and 14, seven times, which is the number of completion, you have the word worship used for the apostasy and only once used for God because God only has to, should only have to tell us once that he is worthy of worship. So that number seven, and he does seven Sabbath miracles and we're not gonna read them, but I'm gonna tell you where they are and what they are. In Matthew chapter 12, he heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. And I'll tell you what they all have in common. The unclean spirit in Mark chapter one, also in Mark chapter 1, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. The disabling spirit, the lady who was hunched over for 18 years in Luke chapter 13. The man with dropsy in Luke chapter 14. The pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. The man born blind in John chapter 9. Each of these miracles were done because the leaders of that day had so burdened the Sabbath, had made it so legalistic, had taken the joy out of it, that God, Jesus, specifically healed on the Sabbath day because that's what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is meant to spend special time with God because we have school and we have work throughout the week. Spend quality time with your family, with your friends, with time in his creation and acts of service to your community. The Sabbath was given as a gift. And if you know your New Testament, Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Why is that? Because he is our creator. He created the seventh day Sabbath as a special blessing to you and to me and to humanity. He blessed it, he sanctified it, and he rested on that day. Now we get to the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts is the history post the gospel. Jesus Christ is dead, he has ascended, he has resurrected, he has ascended into heaven. In fact, Jesus in his death, the Bible tells us, in the gospel that he died on good friday everybody knows that it's good friday he died he resurrected on resurrected resurrection sunday what he did on saturday was take his sabbath rest the work of redemption was complete and just like he did not create anything on the seventh day of creation week all he did on sabbath was rested in the grave until he resurrected. And it's interesting that the disciples did not finish um, anointing his body because they rested according to what? The commandment. So nowhere prior to his death, burial, and resurrection is there instructions that the day was going to be changed from Saturday to Sunday. 
Nowhere in the New Testament. You'll never hear any words of Jesus about that. And so now we get to the critical point in the history of the New Testament, the book of Acts, because some speculate that that's where it was changed. Now, what's interesting about the book of Acts is that it's 28 chapters. You can read these 28 chapters really quickly, less than a day, maybe a couple of hours. But what we forget to understand sometimes is that these 28 chapters are a span of history of anywhere between 40 to 65 years. So now we have the 4,000 years of the Old Testament, the 33 plus years of the Gospels, now another 60 years. Now we, you can round it up to another 100 years where the seventh day Sabbath is still Saturday. So we are going to stop and look at several verses here. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 13 verse 14. Acts chapter 13 verse 14. Well let me start in 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga they arrived at Sidon Antioch and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down so the day at this point wasn't changed they are still preaching the Bible and the Word of God on the Sabbath day look at verse 40 no 27 in the same chapter for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognize neither him nor the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled the, fulfill these by condemning him. So Paul is preaching to them about the fact that our own leaders, the own very leaders of Israel, condemn Jesus Christ, and he's doing this every Sabbath. Verse 42, same chapter. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. You would think that if it was changed, the disciples would have been the first ones to know. However, year after year, Luke marking the history of how Paul and Peter and the apostles preached the gospel, here referencing both Jew, Jews and Gentiles, they begged them to preach not on Sunday, but on the next Sabbath. Let's keep going here. Verse 44, same chapter. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear what? Paul's teachings? They assembled to hear the word of God. Let's keep going. Acts 15, 21. It says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. You would think if this was only going to be a Jewish thing, this would have been a good time to insert, but us Christians do something different. But he says from ancient generations, and one of the beauties of the fact that I like that it mentions Moses, turn with me to the book of John chapter 5 what Jesus says about Moses. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. 
He says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testify of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Butchered that. Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. At this point in time, all they had was the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ is specifically saying, look, you're looking at the Old Testament because you think they will give you eternal life, but they testify about me. One illustration I like to use about the importance of the Old Testament is it's we're trying in the Old Testament like stones unturned to try to find Jesus in every area of the Old Testament. Because he permeates the Old Testament. In verse 40 he says, And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, point to Jesus Christ. But here's the key word with Moses in verse 46. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Now here's the key. But if you do not believe his writings, then how will you believe my words? So this is the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, saying, if you don't believe Moses and what he wrote and learn to find me in his Old Testament, then how are you even going to believe me? Because his teachings, Christ's teachings who inspired the Old Testament, are built on the foundation of the Old Testament. I like how David Asherick says, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed in all the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 16, 13. Acts 16, 13. Well, let me go to 11 to give you some context. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. It's not even a Jewish, right? It's a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And yet in a Roman colony, in a Roman city with plenty of Gentiles, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Why? Because by this time I asked, they're getting thrown out of synagogues. But still on the Sabbath day, they're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Acts 17.2. 17.2 says, And according to Paul's custom, a custom is not something you do every once in a while. A custom is something you do customarily. And according to this, it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from scriptures. On the Sabbath day, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had suffered and, and, and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming, proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded by and joined Paul and Silas, 
along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Here we see not just preaching to Jews, but to Greeks and leading women who have accepted that Paul's preaching was customarily on the Sabbath day. And let's look at one final one, Acts 18.4. Let's start in verse 1. After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome, he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. What does the fourth commandment say? Six days thou shalt work. They were tent makers. But verse 4 says, And he was reasoning in every synagogue, in the synagogue, every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So throughout the history of the Old New Testament, the hundred plus years of the Gospels, history and Acts, the seventh day Sabbath remains. Nowhere in scripture is there a change verbally said either by Christ, any of the disciples, or a disciple quoting something that Christ said. And so we end through the book of Acts with no mention of a change. There is one verse that's used, Acts 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. First day of the week it mentions. But if you read the chapter, he mentions several days. Five days we traveled here. Three days we traveled there. He's giving a chronology of Paul's events. But even if you accept this to be a day that they worshipped on the first day of the week, it still says nothing about the commandment changing. Because there are often times where we have evangelistic series or we have week of prayers where we have service every day of the week, including the Sabbath day. So nothing in the books of Acts concretely says that the day was changed. Now, you've heard me say before, many people honor Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But nowhere in Scripture is that given as a reason to change from Saturday to Sunday. And we do honor the resurrection by two important symbols. As often as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death and resurrection until He comes. And every time we see somebody baptized, they are baptized into his death, Romans 6, and are resurrected to newness of life because of the power of Jesus Christ. So Acts. And then this notion of first day of the week or Sabbath goes silent in the rest of Scripture. Now, no, no big mention of it. Why? Because it's established that the seventh-day Sabbath is in perpetuity. There is no arguments defending or opposing it because it is a given both to the Jews who remained Jewish and both to the Jews who, who followed Christ. That was never an issue. But it does become an issue eventually. So I ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 13. The book of Revelation chapter 13. 
13. I'm going to read, follow along. I'm going to read in verse 4. And pay attention to the usage of the word worship. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? The word worship is used twice. Jump to verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Three times used for the beast. Look at verse 12. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Four times. Verse 15. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That is six times. No, five times. Jump to verse 9 in Revelation 14. Then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark of his name. I, every time I read the third angel's message, I like to point out that no one need drink this cup because Jesus Christ drank this cup first. When he asked his father if three times, if it's possible, let this cup pass me by. But eventually he took it. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ drank that cup. That horrible cup described in the symbolism of Revelation 13. Jesus Christ took it for you and for me. And no sinner need receive the wrath of God. If we accept the gift of Jesus Christ. He drank that cup for you and for me. So seven times we see a call to worship the beast. But only once in these two chapters, Revelation 6 and 7, and it says, I saw another angel in chapter 14 flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel. Some versions say everlasting gospel. That means that from Genesis to we're home in eternity, the gospel has never changed. And if the gospel included the seventh-day Sabbath in creation, the eternal everlasting gospel has, will be kept throughout all eternity from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. We will have a special day to worship our Lord. This angel says, having an eternal gospel, an everlasting gospel, to preach to all who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. No one is excluded. No religion is excluded. Everyone is invited to surrender their life to Jesus Christ. And in verse 7 it says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, 
because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A direct quoting from the fourth commandment where the fourth commandment said about worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all. It's the only commandment that begins with the word remember because God knew that in the end times people would forget. But he's calling us back to worship the creator. Evolution has tried to eviscerate the face of God, but it cannot because we worship the creator. We, many have tried to forget this beautiful, blessed day. But it's not just the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. Beginning in verse... Well, let's just look at the whole chapter real quick. It came about in the sixth year, in the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by my lock of my head and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of idol of jealousy which provokes to jealousy was located and behold the glory of God of Israel was there like the appearance which I saw in the plain then he said to me son of man raise your eyes towards eyes now towards the north so i raised my eyes towards the north and behold to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance and he said to me son of man do you see what they're doing the great abominations which the house of israel are committing here so that i will be far from my sanctuary but you will see greater abominations so God is going to list a list of abominations that get worse and worse. Look at verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. When I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to them, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing in there. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things which all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say the Lord does not see. The Lord has forsaken the land. The leaders, think about it. The very leaders of God who are supposed to be leading them to the true God are worshiping idols in the very temple of God. We continue in verse 13. And he said to me, yet you will still see greater abominations when they are which they are committing. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. 
He said to me, do you see this son of man? You will still see greater abominations. They're weeping for a foreign God. Then verse 16, then he says, Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. Listen to the imagery. These are the leaders of God's people. The ones who are supposed to be lifting the people up to the throne of grace. They have are in the sanctuary. Let's pretend this is the most holy area. This window. They had turned their back on God and the most holy. And are worshiping what? The sun. How have they fallen? Today many are doing likewise. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. And listen to what happens after this still greater abomination. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord. Sorry, in verse 17. Then he said to me, do you see this son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here? But they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly. For behold, they are putting twigs to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. Chapter 9. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioner of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loin and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar then the glory of god of israel went up from the cherub on which he had been to the threshold of the temple and he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins were the writing case verse 4 in chapter 9 then the lord said to him go through the midst of the city even though the mist of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not lay, let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. This is deep stuff. But when you tie this Old Testament passage. The final abomination before the final judgment. Was them turning their backs on God. And worshiping the sun. The final abomination is when man calls Men under the penalty of death to worship contrary to God's commandments. Then and there, you and I will have to take a stand. Will we honor God or will we honor man? Will we stand for what thus saith the Lord or what thus saith man? We have to take a firm foundation in this day and age that I'm going to follow God even if it costs me my life my family, my wife, and my children, I will remain faithful to the God of heaven.
in Ezekiel, God puts a sealing mark on his people. And those who do not have the mark we saw are destroyed. An allusion to the future judgment. But in Revelation, God does put a mark. But in Revelation 13 and 14, it is giving the same story, the same principle, but in reverse. Those who will worship the beast will receive a mark. And those are the ones whose life are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the ones who receive the mark. And they will worship the beast because they have surrendered their thinking and their actions to man's commandments instead of surrendering to God. We're going to wrap up here pretty soon. I want us to look at those three commandments found in Exodus chapter 31 verses 31 13 Exodus 31 13 we alluded to them earlier Exodus 31 13 beginning in verse 12 then most then the Lord spoke to Moses saying but as of you speak to the sons of Israel saying you shall surely observe my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that sanctifies you. Look at Ezekiel chapters 20, 12, and 20. Ezekiel 20, 12, and 20. Also, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign we're focusing on that word between me and them that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies twice here the Lord sanctifies us but look at the difference in verse 20 he says now he's telling the people sanctify my Sabbath in other words he's saying now you keep my Sabbath sanctify my Sabbath and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So it's not just a one-way street. The Lord is sanctifying the Sabbath and he sanctifies us, but we are called to sanctify the Sabbath and then by that knowledge we will recognize that yes, you are our Lord. But many people at this point say, look Gio, this is about Israel. We're the Christian church. This has nothing to do with us. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. This is Paul's plea for his kinsmen, his bloodline, but not his spiritual bloodline, even though he wants them all to be saved. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testify with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to what? To the flesh, he says. He wants his physical Jew brothers and sisters to be saved, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adopt, adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and giving of the law and the temple services and the promise, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But many people try to stop there to say, look, it's all about Israel and the flesh. But look at the very next verse. 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Has God's word failed? Never. God's word will never fail. But he says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendant. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. Here he makes it clear in verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. You and I who hold on to the promise of the Messiah. You and I who hold on to the blood of the Lamb. You and I who hold on to the death of Jesus Christ as my sin pardoning Savior. Anybody, black, white. Jew, Gentile, anybody who holds on to the blood of Jesus Christ, those are the Israelites of God. He excludes no one. All are invited to partake of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's going a little long, but I want to wrap up here in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter this is Paul teaching justification by faith by evidence of the Old Testament and so we're going to read in verse 1 what shall we say then that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. If Deborah's boss comes up to her and says, look, I'm going to give you a favor. I'm going to give you this paycheck. Deborah's going to be like, look, that's not a favor. I worked hard for that. I earned that. But Abraham received salvation with no work. Had he worked, it wouldn't be a favor. It would be wages. Verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. In this blessing... Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Verse 11's our key. And he received the sign. Remember, the Sabbath is a sign. Well, Abraham received the sign of circumcision and that outward physical sign was a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those not only are the are of the circumcision but all who follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham which he had while un
circumcised. Without getting into too much graphic details, but if you see a male, a man naked, you can tell whether he's circumcised or not. And so the Bible here is saying that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, something that was outward, physical, that people can see. And that sign was a seal of the righteousness he had in himself before even he was circumcised. So in other words, he was saved before he was circumcised, but he circumcised himself because he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In the last days, and many within our own denominations, pastors within our own denomination, a small portion, is denying that the Sabbath will be a seal of the inward righteousness that we've been healed by the Holy Spirit. That's why the Lord says the Sabbath is a sign between me and you that I am the Lord your God that sanctifies you. This, we're not saved because we keep the Sabbath. We're not saved because we do not commit adultery. We're not saved because we do not murder. We're not saved because we do not covet. We are saved by one thing and one thing alone, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are saved by that. But when he says something, I will follow. And in the last days, the Sabbath will become a testing truth. It's not that now, but it will become. And at that point, we have to make a decision. Are we going to serve God or are we going to serve man? The final crisis in Ezekiel was them turning their backs on God and worshiping the sun. Today, God is calling us back to worship the creator who made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath is an outward sign of an inward sealing of the Holy Spirit. God is calling each and every one of us into a faith-saving relationship with him. And just like Abraham was sealed before he was circumcised, you could be in a faith-saving relationship with God and worship any other day of the week. But when the rubber hits the road, when the test comes and you're forced to choose between the word of God and the commandments of man, I ask you, follow Jesus every step of the way. If you do not believe Moses, then how will you believe my words? And so we saw the 4,000 years of the Old Testament, it was the seventh-day Sabbath. The gospel, 33-plus years, it was the seventh-day Sabbath. The 60-plus years of the book of Acts, it was the seventh-day Sabbath. Nowhere else in the Old Testament, I mean New Testament, is it really brought up because it's a given. The onus is not on us to prove it's a seventh-day Sabbath. The onus is on others to prove the day was changed. And in the end, the final crisis, as we saw, revolves around worship. But I ask you this last question. When hasn't it not revolved around worship? Adam and Eve believed Satan instead of God. Cain killed his brother because he worshiped the wrong way. Cain worshiped the wrong way and he didn't like it. All throughout biblical history, the enemy is trying to get God's 
God's people to worship something else. And the memorial that he has left us, that we are to worship the only one, the creator God, is the seventh day Sabbath. Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment hath come, and worship him who created the heavens and the earth. Don't forget that the Sabbath is a reminder that we're both his by creation and redemption. And in all eternity, from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, we will worship our Creator. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your amazing love. Father, give us the strength, the faithfulness to stay surrendered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the eternal gospel. But Father, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. From Genesis to Revelation, Paul has told us that all scripture is inspired by God. And of course, we will believe you if we believe Moses, because he spoke about you. We thank you and we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.